The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good evening. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She sits on the advisory board of the California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in Orange County. She testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues, and you may have seen her on TV on 48 Hours, Dateline, NBC, CNN, ABC, O'Reilly, Geraldo, Montel, and lots of other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. Good evening, Mari. Well, hello, Lloyd. Who's your guest tonight? Oh, we have a very exciting guest. I've been wanting to get him on because I have read both of his books, The Art of Deception and The Art of Intrusion. You may have heard me talking about it. And it was not only informative but really exciting. The story is just blew me away and now I feel like wow there is so much that we don't know about social engineering and about the way these hackers work and we have the foremost expert on that on the show with us tonight let me tell you about Kevin Mitnick Kevin Mitnick is a legendary former hacker he's the author of the art of deception and the art of intrusion great books He's also a security expert, and he has a new book that's going to be coming out soon about his autobiography. In his past, we know that with 15 years of experience in exploring computer security, Kevin Mitnick is largely self-taught in exposing the vulnerabilities of the complex operating systems and telecommunications devices. His hobby as a kid consisted of studying methods, tactics, and strategies used to circumvent computer security. From all this knowledge that he gained, Kevin got into unauthorized access to computer systems at some of the largest corporations on the planet, and he penetrated some of the most resilient computer systems ever developed. He's used both technical and social engineering tactics to obtain the source code to various operating systems and telecommunications telecommunication devices to study their vulnerabilities and their inner workings. As the world's most famous former hacker, Kevin has been the subject of countless news and magazine articles published throughout the world. He's made guest appearances on many television and radio shows, including such things as 60 Minutes, Good Morning America, CNN, Talk Back Live, National Public Radio, and now our radio show. And he's been a guest star on ABC's spy drama called Alias. Kevin Mitnick has served as a keynote speaker at numerous industry events. He works all over the world. And he hosted a weekly talk radio show on KFI AM radio in in Los Angeles and, in fact, called me to be on his radio show. So now the tables are turned and his to learn a lot more about all the great work that he is doing now, you can go to mitnicksecurity.com. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to be here. Oh, I know. I've been <laughs> kind of interesting with the tables turned, but it's great. It is I, great. And you're also a friend of a friend of mine, Robert Rebin, who just thinks you are wonderful and has heard you speak so many times as you're fantastic so it's uh it's fun to get to meet you at least over the phone again and now i get to be the interviewer so this is fantastic. super yeah, okay. I, met, I met mr rubin when we were doing uh uh an uh speaking oppor- uh, speaking opportunity came up in trinidad so i i, I believe it was 
uh, Trinidad, and uh, that, I believe that's where I met him. So it was like uh, not even in America. Yeah. Quite, quite interesting. <laughs> I know, and then you get to go to Colombia all the time, so that's great. So listen, we're going to talk to you today as the top cons- excuse me. We're going to talk to you today about the top computer security expert in the world. But your previous life, you were a cyber desperado and fugitive from one of the most exhaustive FBI manhunts in history. Kevin, I want to inspire my audience and help them see how people like you can change your life for for the good. Will you please explain how you became a hacker and how you ended up in federal prison? Sure. Um, Back when I was a teenager, about 15 or 16 years old, I developed a, a fascination with the telephone system. And as a young kid, I always liked to know how things worked, so I used to take things apart, put them back together. Some, in some cases, even when I was younger, I couldn't even put a Schwinn bike back together after trying to take it you know, entirely apart. <laughs> and my mom was pretty upset at that time, but you know, as I grew up later in life, I turned from bicycles into electronics. And, um, and at the time, the phone company uh, did not have computerized switches in Los Angeles. They had these electromechanical switches known as step-by-step and crossbar. And I became what is known as a phone freak. And a, and a phone freaker uh, associates with people with similar interests. And they also try to do, you know, uh, fun things with the phone. Um, for example, I, I remember going to a payphone in Los Angeles and routing my call, making a phone call, and routing it through all these different countries throughout the world and calling the payphone next to me. So what I would do is I would say hello into the uh, mouthpiece, and then about you know, 10 seconds later I'd hear the echo of my hello coming back all the way around the world. So it was, it, was, it was this fascination with really how did the phone system work, how can I pick up the phone and call anywhere in the world. And then I developed, I, I, I developed an understanding of this community of mostly blind kids that were also kind of exploring the telephone network. It was kind of like, uh, like the internet. It's like the predecessor to the internet today. It was there was these social networks uh, that were part of what we call telephone conferences. Hmm. So in any event, I became so interested in the phone system that later on, when the phone systems started to, when the Bell Operating Company started to move over to electronic switching systems, well, I became interested in uh, mastering those systems. And those systems were controlled by computers. So about when I was about 17, 17 and a half in high school, as my passion in understanding the the telephony world, uh, I had to learn about computers. And I started in high school learning about computers and eventually fell into what is known today as computer hacking. And the computer hacking that I did at the time was to manipulate the phone company switches. And I would do, I'd do crazy stuff. I was kind of a prankster as a kid. So what I would do is uh, if I had a friend, I had this uh, friend in Pasadena, and I remember getting into it, the telephone switch via computer and changing the line class code of his telephone at home to that of a payphone. So whenever he or his mom would try to make a call, it'd say, please deposit a dime. <laughs> right? Of course, there's nowhere to deposit the dime. <laughs> you know, so I do all these crazy things. I remember one time uh, intercepting directory assistance. So when somebody would make a call to directory assistance in Rhode Island, rather than getting a directory assistance operator, they get me. <laughs> and, you know, as a 17-year-old, you know, that's pretty fun, you know, yeah. pretending to be a DA operator. Some person would say, you know, what's, you know, I would say what city, they'd say Providence, and then I'd ask them for the listing, and then I'd say, yeah, that number is 562-31-27. They'd go, what? You know, 562-31-27. Well, how do you dial a half? You know, so as a kid, I'd like pull all these crazy pranks with the phone system. Then later on, as I got more involved in, in this uh, passion of learning about technology, I got involved in... In, in hacking, and at the time I wanted to become the best hacker, kind of like one of my inspirations in my younger years was, uh, well, one of my inspirations was Harry Houdini because of his uh, magical powers, you know, with, uh, with magic and illusions, and I kind of wanted to do the same thing with computers, so I became kind of this explorer on what was known as the ARPANET, and the ARPANET actually is a predecessor to today's internet, and what I would do is I'd figure out ways to get into other computers kind of as an exploratory uh, uh, quest. And once 
and I'd be mapping out the world, going all over the world from the comfort, you know, like of my own home or another university, and basically trying to pick the electronic locks to these computers, and then once I was able to pick it, then I'd move on to the next, to the next challenge. So to me, hacking was really about the intellectual challenge, the curiosity, kind of as a kid that, you know, I was raised by a single mother uh, who worked long hours, and I kind of had to babysit myself when I was younger. So what I would do is I'd have to find things to do to occupy my time and do them from home. So again, I was able to uh, explore computer systems and such. And then eventually, I started really pushing the envelope and uh, got myself into a lot of hot water, um, mainly for uh, hacking into companies that develop cell phones. And what I wanted to do at the time is uh, get a good understanding of how the cell phones worked and how I could, you know, play with them like I used to, you know, play with the phone company computers when I was younger. And, of course, that's stealing software because when you hack into a, a company and you copy – what I did is I copied proprietary software that ran – that were the brains of the cell phone. Kind of what it's called firmware. And I moved a copy of the uh, source code to a university uh, in Los Angeles, USC, and that way I'd look at the source code on their computers. I wouldn't keep a copy of it on mine because it was too risky at the time. So in any event, uh, you know, years later, I was, uh, I, I was uh, arrested by the FBI after, uh, after this manhunt. Uh, and it was kind of, I was, you know, it's like I was the America's uh, most wanted hacker, but probably I was the only hacker wanted at the time. So I, at that time, I really <laughs> didn't consider myself as like one of the 10 most wanted. I was never on that list. But, you know, what had happened is, you know, I'm, I'm cutting through a lot of history here, is I remember uh, being arrested and I was in court uh, a few days later, and I remember the, uh, the prosecutor telling the judge that they can't let me out on bail because if I were to get out on bail, there's untold havoc I could, uh, I could wreak. And, and even if I'm in custody, they have to put me somewhere where there's no access to a computer or a telephone lest I start a World War III by whistling into a telephone. <laughs> and, of course, as a, I was kind of like chuckling to myself without doing it out loud because this guy's like, yeah. you know, he's ruining his credibility <laughs> right, by saying I could whistle launch codes. Right? So anyway, what happens is the judge bought it. I ended up uh, spending a year in solitary confinement, actually oh, it was like eight God. and a half months. And I was held in the highest security possible in the Federal Bureau of Prisons. Oh, my goodness. And uh, after that, after, you know, I got out, I ran and became a fugitive because I was afraid that the government could do anything at the time because they were able to hold me in such extreme and solitary conditions based on rumors and innuendo. So I was afraid, you know, and I was, uh, and I was younger, and I was, I, I was really concerned about, you know, becoming a scapegoat for other people's activities as well. So I became a fugitive and I ran and eventually I caught three years later and then they threw the book at me and I ended up spending about four and a half years in a federal detention center uh, fighting my case, uh, litigating it with the government. There was a lot of uh, issues that came up there. And then eventually after four and a half years, the government offered me a plea agreement that basically would settle the case and I accepted it, and then I uh, was released in January of 2000. And then coincidentally, two months later, uh, Fred Thompson, uh, the same... Uh, the guy who's running for president? president <laughs> yeah. He, he actually uh, wrote me a letter and said, hey, um, of course not in these words, but the gist of it was, hey, we'd, we want you to come to Washington and help us out because we're very concerned about the security of uh, any computers-operated um on behalf or for the federal government, and we want to secure these systems, so we want, we want to hear what you have to say. So uh, I had to get permission, of course, of the probation department at the time, because I was on supervised release and I was allowed to go to Washington, and that's where I prepared written testimony and testified for Congress and gave them my opinion about things that the government could do to ramp up their security. And, uh, and since that day, I've pretty much been working on the other side and helping uh, governments, helping uh, universities and businesses uh, protect themselves against the threats out there. 
So when, I know for a while you couldn't even touch a computer, right? So when were you allowed to once again touch a computer? That's a really interesting story because I was released in January of 2000. And I not only was I not allowed to touch a computer, Marie, I wasn't allowed to use any device that had a transistor. Oh, my gosh. I mean, <laughs> That's I mean, everything. This is a cell phone, a fax machine. Uh. Um, literally, my conditions were so broadly written that if I were to call up and make an airline reservation and that airline reservation clerk were to access a computer, I could be in violation because I had a condition that I couldn't access computers through third parties. Oh, my so, gosh. <laughs> Everything you do these days is by a third party. Right. <laughs> you know, you ride in an elevator, you're, you, there's a computer involved somewhere, but they really, they wrote it so broadly so the government could, you know, pretty much violate me it for anything that they, you know, if, if they ever had the desire. So when I was commissioned to write The Art of Deception, I, uh, I asked uh, the federal probation department for permission to use a computer, and this was after... We actually ended up in court because the probation department at the time was really taking a strict stance. And after I testified for Congress, a lot of uh, you know media organizations and companies wanted my security advice, and uh, you know either in written form or in, in the form of doing presentations. And the probation department basically says, "Well, uh, how we read your conditions, you can't even talk about computers." Oh no! So we had a good, yeah, oh, yeah. No, so I, so basically. <laughs> We, we had to go back to court and say, well, this is unreasonable. Right. How good are you going to make a living when you're outside of the jail? You know, I mean, that's your expertise. Exactly. But exactly. But see, the government, uh, which is unknown to the public, uh, and I know the, I know the laws very well so, because I worked with them for you know, five years when I was dealing with this, is the government could actually impose any condition of supervised release, even if it restricts the fundamental constitutional right, right. as long as... As long as there's two goals, one is it helps rehabilitate the offender or or protects the public. So our argument was, well, by you know by basically silencing me by gagging me uh, doesn't meet either of those two objectives. So right. so it's unreasonable. And the judge who really didn't like me at the time because after four and a half years, she really uh, I, I could really understand her thinking you know I'm a real pain in the ass. Yeah. So. <laughs> So she was upset. So when I when, when I went back into court, I remember her first word, where the court had no doubt that we'd be seeing Mr. Mitnick again. Uh. <laughs> that was her first word. <laughs> yeah. So she was clearly upset and basically sent the message to the probation department, you know, work it out. You know, I don't want to see him back in here. Work it out. Be reasonable. So then they started to be reasonable. So then about a year later, I asked for a computer. Or no, I, I asked for a word processor so I can uh, write the book. Right. And surprisingly, the probation, my probation officer, um, uh, he, he surprised me and said, well, we're going to give you permission to get a laptop. Ah. I said, what? <laughs> he says, yes, but there's some conditions to it. And I go, what are the conditions? He goes, well, number one is you don't tell anybody, especially the media. <laughs> I go, huh? <laughs> you don't tell anybody, especially the media. Nobody knows about this. I go, Okay. What's yeah. number two? You can't use the Internet. And I said, well, okay, I understand that, but if I don't use the Internet, can I dial up to, like, bulletin boards, you know, like over a modem? He goes, yeah, I have no problem with you using, you know, a modem. And then it, it kind of alerted to me that this was kind of clueless because all my crimes actually occurred over the modem. Right, right. Not over the Internet. <laughs> but they didn't the understand. Internet wasn't really born back in those days, right? Right, right. Yeah, as it is today. But So I kept my mouth shut. Wrote my book, and then after my probation ended three years later, in 2003, I was uh, allowed to use computers again, and it was on a TV show called Screensavers, and they made it into this big uh, boo-ha-ha about me you know, being able to use the Internet after eight years, and that's that story. So then you had to catch up to speed, didn't you? That, was, that, was that a challenge? You sounds like you're such a techie, it wasn't even a challenge, huh? Well, no, I still had to get up to speed. Fortunately, while I was, you know, in custody, I, I used to read a lot of books on computers that people would send me. Oh, they'd and, still let uh, you that, read the books, though, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, which was surprising. Surprised I didn't try to stop that. But you know what was really funny is people would send me email, right? Yes. And they they print it out, and sometimes on the email it would have these like headers, like it would say like you know mine compliance, you know, and it would have like a version number, some software. 
yada, 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 right? And the prison officials refused to give me the email stating the, 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 the rationale was these people are writing you in secret code. <laughs> I go, secret code? I go, those are email headers. There's no secret code. And they go, no, no this, this is a secret code. We can't let you have it. So I was restricted from receiving printed out email lest somebody communicate something secretly, secretly to me. It was ridiculous. It reminded me back then of being held uh, in solitary confinement because I could launch nukes by simply whistling into a phone. You know, that should be one of your books, too. Maybe that'll be in your autobiography about your, your time in prison. I mean, uh, you know, actually that would be fun. Actually, we didn't include any of that uh, uh, in our proposal. We haven't written the book yet because my agent has actually uh, started shopping it around to see if any publishers are interested in picking up the, picking up the work. So, uh, so, so tell me. There's I, so I, much I, to tell. I know, that, I know. <laughs> yeah, there's so much information to tell. I don't know, you know, what to eliminate and what to include. Without Although I think like it would be interesting. Book. I mean, how many people have that experience? I mean, I remember reading um, Anwar Sadat when he was in solitary, what he went through. I remember reading his book. And I just wonder, like, when you're in solitary confinement for eight months, what did you do? Did you... Did you read? Did you meditate? Did you have any uh, existential experiences? <laughs> well, what I was allowed to have was an AM/FM Walkman radio, uh, so I, I listened to the radio all the time. Listened to the news. Listened to music. You know, read, slept a lot, did push-ups, and that was it. <laughs> so, so, and try to use the phone whenever possible uh, to talk to my attorney and to my family. So, but imagine this. Imagine, you know. Here you are being held for years. Okay, this is not like days, weeks, or months. Literally years without a trial. Okay, and 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 uh, and as part and, and as part of that time, you're held in solitary confinement. And just to use the shower, they actually you have to stick your hands through this trap door. They handcuff you. They actually put like leg handcuffs on you. They open the door. They walk you 15 feet to the shower. And then you have to do the opposite to take the handcuffs off. Oh my and then when God. you're done showering, you have to put the handcuffs back on, and they take you back to your cell and take them back off again. I mean, this was like something out of, you know, cool hand, cool hand loop. <laughs> it, was, you know, it was like, I, it felt like I was like living in, 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 a, in a movie. Yes. That wasn't really real. It felt really surreal. Like, like I was waiting, when am I going to wake up? I know, and you were just, and it isn't like you were a, uh, a violent criminal, and it isn't like you were trying to take down America through hacking. It was you were a no, prankster. You know, you were a prankster. You were, you know, a kid that grew up that was still pranking. That's, that's exactly. how Exactly, but see, I, I, I stepped on a lot of toes, and yeah. it was kind of retribution by a lot of these, like, large companies that were really, right, rightfully so, they were rightly, rightfully so angry for me, violating their property rights. Right, right. Uh, you know, I wasn't doing it to profit. I wasn't deleting information off their computers. But they were really angry. So I think what they, you know, what I became is I became the poster boy yeah, for computer yeah. hacking. And the government wanted to send a message. Uh, the companies wanted retribution. And, uh, I, and I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And I became, you know, I won the scapegoat sweepstakes. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, not but, to say but, I shouldn't have been punished. I certainly right. should have for my transgressions, but but I mean they really went overboard. You know, you know. Uh, well, you you were like made Aldrich into an James. example. Yeah, you were made into an example. But you know, I with all of your brilliance, and I, you know, as I read your both of your books, I was pretty much in awe of all of the creativity of you and the other hackers that you talked about in both of your books. And I'm and I'm thinking that's genius, and putting that to work not just for putting on programs and telling companies how to protect themselves, which you do a great job. But, I mean, you could really do some great inventions. <laughs> I don't know if you if you have put anything together, but, I mean, with I've that kind thinking. of a, Yeah, you have such a brilliant mind. Why not? I've been thinking, and, and, and credit also is due to my co-author, Bill Simon. He's he's not a, a computer aficionado like me, you know, but he's a, he's an exceptional, uh, best-selling author. And by teaming up with uh, Bill Simon, we were able to develop this great, you know, piece of work. Yeah, both so. of them are great. Well, let's talk, let's get into that, because in The Art of Deception, that really was incredible about the human factors involved with information security. Kevin, why is it that with all the firewalls and encryption tools in the world, we'll never, 
you say that that's never going to be enough to stop somebody uh, who's intent on getting into a corporate database. Why yeah, is that? It's kind of like a fence. You're, you're like a kid, and you want to get over the fence. So you look for the weakest link in the chain, right? You go right. to one side of the fence, and you, there's a hole in it. You're going to crawl through it. Right. Same thing, same thing with, uh, with what hackers do is they go after the weakest link in the chain. And if you're a company and you purchased, you know, the best firewalls that money could buy, uh, you, best, you purchased the best intrusion detection systems and intrusion prevention systems, you're using data encryption, you have a business continuity plan, you have everything that, you, you know, you're exercising some standard of due care, uh, probably in, 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 in line with your, your business. And all a bad guy needs to do in, in, in a lot of these cases to simply call up somebody over the telephone at your company, somebody that's in a trusted position that has access to the technology, and basically trick that person into either releasing information or you know typing something in there on their computer, uh, and all the money you just spent on all this technology is essentially wasted because the hacker gets in through that methodology, and that's called social engineering. I mean, we all we all are targets of it. I mean. I'm sure you, Marie, have received emails from PayPal, eBay, Amazon. Sure, the phishing uh, stuff. Uh-huh. You know, with phishing schemes where, uh, where criminals are trying to fish out your username and passwords to your online banks and your credit card numbers. And a lot of these phishing schemes are extremely successful. And the, the major component that is used is social engineering, tricking somebody, creating a situation uh, where somebody is likely to comply with revealing sensitive information and uh, and they're able to create you know here's your receipt for something that you 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 ordered and you know you didn't order it so you want to resolve it because you don't want the charges and and while you're trying to deal with it you're not even thinking that you're revealing sensitive information that the bad guy could use against you right right I know there was a story on msnbc.com last in August and it stated that um, 61 out of 102 employees at the IRS complied with the request that the employee supply his or her name and their password to some fake caller, to some Isn't hacker. That a shame? Yeah, and it said that the report said that the employees failed to even question the identity of the caller. And even though this was just a test, after extensive, they did this after extensive training. Now, how does that happen, Kevin? <laughs> how does that well, happen? I hate to see, I hate to say it, but there's no patch for stupidity. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, not people aren't stupid. But, you know, I think they're so trusting. They're trusting, and you know, you had said throughout your book, "The Art of Deception," about how people who are these social engineers, and like you, you know, they're they're engaging, they're charming, they they use every bit of charm, and they're almost like sociopaths, aren't they? Oh, some could be. It, uh, it definitely depends on on the individual or someone that, that, you know, that is good at lying. I look at it as a social engineer is good at acting. Yes. I mean, um, that they're good at being in the moment. They're, they think fast on their feet. They're able to gain trust, which is the key. They're able to build credibility by, by changing a person's perceptions of what's really happening around them. I would say it's very analogous to magic and illusions of how the magician is able to make you think something is happening, but he's, he or she is able to easily trick you. It's the same thing with social engineering. And what I find a lot of, you know, strangely enough, I, I do ethical hacking. So companies hire me from all around the world, and they say, Kevin, we want to test our security. We want you to try to break into our computer systems and network, and if you can, tell us how you did it. Right, right. So we can prevent it. So and now you're going to get paid of, for everything that you always learned to do. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you went to so where can you take a criminal activity and make it into a business? <laughs> great. Well, it's great. Ethical hacking. Right. So anyway, uh, and, and, this is, and, and this is not to be braggadocious, but in every company that we've tested, and we've tested countless companies, um, we've never not been able to break in. And, and with social engineering, and that is not, that is, Rarely using social engineering, but it's so easy. It makes it it's so easy for the bad guy to use a social engineering attack. In other words, use some sort of create some sort of situation, and they put themselves in the role of being another employee or somebody who has a right to know the information, or somebody 
that you trust their credibility, like someone pretends to be from the IT department and asks a person at a company to do something to fix a problem or to prevent a problem from occurring in the future, most people, unless they're inherently suspicious or have been burned before, will usually comply. And all it takes is one time. You know, if you're at a company like Boeing or IBM, Microsoft, you know, all it takes is one employee that cooperates in Basically, the game is over. The bad guy usually can get in. And you gave so many great examples of people calling up and, you know, maybe it's a it's like a Friday afternoon and they go, oh, my gosh, I have to get this report done and, you know, kind of engage the other side to want to help you, you know, and and people who are maybe newer there or think that it's somebody who's a higher level, they have to help them. They just um, they forget about all the protocol and all the training when they're there trying to be a nice guy to help a fellow employee. That's why training is so important in actually inoculating people through security awareness training programs, inoculating them on the types of situations that attackers can think of so they understand, they could understand an approach or they hopefully could recognize a suspicious approach. And what social engineers are really good at is convincing or or influencing employees to break policy. And that's in cases where a company trains their people on what the appropriate policies and procedures are. So in creating an effective and meaningful information security program, you need to train your staff on, you know, on, on what the policies are and motivate them on never to break those policies uh, under any circumstances unless it's permitted by a supervisor or by a manager. Yeah, that's why I think it's so important to do role-playing because if you just tell somebody, these are the rules, this is the handbook, this is the policy and procedure, it, it's not anything like when somebody's really there trying to, you know, uh, convince you to help them, you know? It's, yeah, it's, uh, it's exactly. a totally it's different like thing. This. The perfect analogy, sorry for interrupting you, the perfect analogy is you know the driving handbook you go take your you, know, you take the driving test right. you basically read it you go take the test and you forget about all the information right right who who actually refers to it who actually refers to the vehicle code so having a security policy handbook and expecting employees to actually read it right. on their own time uh, and understand it is it's, it's unlikely unless an employee is part of a security department so and even though uh, I they, find you know, that companies aren't doing it correctly. They're not training yeah. people correctly, and they're not using common sense uh, training techniques to get their people uh, in the position of avoiding these type of attacks. I know. I mean, I see that a lot of them are doing this online training where they answer A, B, and C, and then if they get the wrong answer. But that's not the same thing as having a real human trying to talk to you. You know, they have to simulate as much as, as reality. I know I teach negotiations here at UCI, and it's it, you can't just read a book about how to negotiate. you got to really get in there and practice it and see the tools and how it works and what you should be doing, what your net's going to be doing, and, and really, you know, work the system in, in a real-type situation. And if you don't do it that way, I mean, that's what I'm thinking is why it didn't work with the IRS, why so many of these people still, I don't think they were stupid. I just don't think that they had the, the proper training. So when you do your training, Kevin, is it is it real live practice? Oh, yeah, we do role-playing. I, I developed a anti-social engineering workshop. And in, in this workshop, we, we, te- we teach, um, we go down to the psychological principles of influence that are used by social engineers to influence people to cooperate essentially to comply with the request. And we do role-playing exercises or we uh, have stories, you know, that actually illustrate each of the type of techniques that are used by the bad guys to gain trust. So the delegates or the students now have an understanding of how it works. And then we, you know, we group people together and, and get and have the students do, you know, exercises to reinforce this information. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it, you're right. And, it's you know to be a computer programmer you can't just simply read a book and do it you actually have to have practice you have to have that experience and that's what we try to give to our delegates when we're actually teaching these classes 
Kevin, will you give a couple of the stories? I know you had great stories in both the art of deception and the art of intrusion, and especially the art of deception. I was really intrigued with that because that's that's all really the social engineering stuff that I think people really miss. You know, they think they've got all the perfect technology, and then everything goes to hell because of the fact that the the human factor gets involved. Would you give a couple examples for us? Sure. I mean. Uh... Here's one example that exploits a, story, a yeah. person's uh, curiosity. Or how about this? How about the uh, how about the average person's desire to get free things? So imagine that you're uh, you're at your company. You get out of your car with your morning Starbucks coffee, and as you get out of your car, you notice uh, something on the ground that looks looks unusual, and you pick it up, and it's a USB drive. And you go, cool. You know, you you kind of look at it, and it's like a one gig drive. And you go, wow, you know, this is kind of interesting. Maybe something flashes through your mind, you know, do you, you know, is there something interesting on there? But nonetheless, you know, it's a, it's a free drive. Right. So later on in that day, you take it back into your office, you plug it into your workstation. There's a couple of photographs, just nondescript, uh, you know, pictures of trees or birds or whatever on this drive. And you, you basically just, you know, no indication of who the drive belongs to. You erase them and now it's your drive. You put it on your keychain. But what you didn't know is that drives, uh, several of those drives were basically thrown into the parking lot, maybe five or six, maybe next to uh, fancy cars that would likely be driven by executives. And as soon as you plugged in that USB into your computer, it secretly ran a, a program, unbeknownst to you. And what that program did was place a, uh, a place a back door into the computer system at your office and what that program did is it made an outgoing connection to the bad guy. Oh, so now your now your computer is making an outgoing connection to the bad guy, and now this person is basically has full control of your computer, and from your computer from within your corporate network can now use other techniques to basically get access to servers or access to confidential information inside that corporation, and you have no idea what happened. Oh, Let's say your IT department is kind of watching connections that are going out and they're monitoring network traffic. A lot of these programs, well, we, can, we can label it spyware, but I would say it's a more sophisticated type of Trojan. A Trojan is basically a term used to describe a piece of software that's on your computer without your knowledge or consent, and it is very covert. Well, this Trojan actually communicates with a hacker using an encrypted tunnel. So even if your IT people are kind of watching the traffic, they don't see anything. They just see encrypted garbage. It could it could just look like a secure web session, uh, like you know when you see the little padlock yeah. on your on your browser. Yeah. And and basically the the this this program is actually set so even if the hacker disconnects, it tries to connect to the hacker you now maybe once every five minutes. So if the hacker is accepting the connections, basically the hacker now isn't back in full control of your computer. So there's an example of social engineering by manipulating a person's desire to obtain free things like uh, USB yeah. drives. And that's not even a face-to-face -face thing. <laughs> that's no. not even social engineering. That's just a, a psychology of figuring, hey, if I throw this out, they're going to pick it up and they're going to use it. And how many? And a lot of people would do that. Right, and it is social engineering because social engineering, at least in my definition, yeah. is where you use manipulation, deception, or influence tactics to... Uh, to to get compliance with the request to get to get a person to comply with the request right. and this is where it's nonverbal right. where you want them to plug it in and you're setting up the situation where they're going to do it. Let's say they did it at home. Let's take it. They took the USB drive home. They never right. plugged it into the office. So they're at home. They plug in. That computer is compromised. And then when that person eventually uh, connects to the corporate corporate network via even like a VPN, a virtual private network, the hacker is in with them. Oh my. And actually is now piggybacking on that connection into the corporation. Wow. And they just throw these USB drives and just wait and see who's going to pick it up and who's going to do you this. Could do it, you could do it a number of ways. You, you could actually go inside the company, use the restroom, drop one there. Uh -huh. You know, you could, you could you know, follow, some, you know, you could follow a, a target home and drop it in their driveway or drop it next to their car and not even drop it in the corporate parking lot. It, it's, uh, uh, you know, that's just one of, you know, thousands of possibilities. Wow. So I thought that was the most interesting because you could just understand a lot of people probably listening to your show would say, hey, I would fall for that too. Yeah, a lot of people would. 
exactly. Especially students here, you know, at the university. You know, they're looking for free things because, you know, they're on a student budget and, and they might be wanting to do it. Or you're right, anybody. We have lots now, of... Anybody. Yeah. Now, how do you protect yourself against, against that one attack? You could use technology by disabling auto-run on Windows. So, uh, because how that, how that uh, hack works is the USB drive is kind of acting like a CD-ROM. When you, when you put the CD into your drive, it automatically, uh, it automatically runs. Right. Well, there's CD, there's USB drives that have the same firmware that do the same thing. So basically, if you disable auto run, uh, it, it will like that won't likely happen. So you have something that you know. I've seen some. I've talked to people who have some kind of um, software and hardware that that won't let a USB drive come in, or it or it actually tests it first before it allows it to come in. Is that what you're saying? Well, what an auto run does is when they plug in the USB drive, it, it doesn't automatically run a program. Right, right. So, so basically, you could plug it in, but the, the but the hacker's code won't run. I see. So, okay. But that's a way. Just but that's in just one instance. A lot of social engineering takes place on the phone, where somebody will call another individual at the company, pretending to be from the IT department, maybe right. having them type in some commands into their computer under the pretext that it's to fix a problem or make their computer run faster, or they direct somebody to, you know, go to a particular website just to make sure they could surf the Internet. But what happens there is the attacker has already set up that malicious website that exploits a technical vulnerability and actually places a backdoor program on the victim's computer as well. Right. I remember you gave a couple examples where somebody calls in and says, no, listen, don't give me your password. Never give out your password. <laughs> so they already are trusting of this person saying, yeah, they're trying to protect me that I don't give my password. But they but they do other things that that they build the trust in another way. That was, you know, again, that that's easy to get somebody who's a, who's a newer employee. And I think you said in your book that that newer employees are particularly vulnerable to the social engineering attacks. And why is that? Well, that's because they likely haven't been trained on policy. They likely want to cooperate with anybody that claims to be a coworker or an employee of the company because they're on probation. They want to they want to be a team player. They want to do a good job. And, um, uh, and they don't necessarily recognize the voices or even the faces of, of other coworkers if they're in a large enough company. Right, right. So when receptionists and other people get calls from someone pretending to be an employee, how should they inver- how should they verify who they're talking to? Well it all, it all comes down to is what information or what action is the requester making. If the person is asking for sensitive information, then certainly that information shouldn't be uh, given out unless it, unless there's some sort of verification step to verify that not only they are, that they are who they say they are, but they're indeed authorized. Uh, but also what comes into play is somebody calling up, say, a receptionist, and they're not doing the real social, they're not doing the final social engineering attack or the final deception until they get to a particular person. So they simply call the reception and try to get the, the telephone numbers or the telephone extensions of potential targets. And in many cases, the automated voicemail system at a company will reveal internal telephone extensions or the uh, telephone receptionist will give it out. And then if an employee receives a direct call not going through the switchboard, um, it does raise a little bit of, it does build a little bit of trust and credibility in some cases. It really depends on the company. Um, for example, with the phone company, if you know their ex- ex- internal telephone numbers, there's automatically an assumption made by the receiver of that telephone call that you are an employee. Right. So, example, Microsoft. When you call Microsoft and you ask for an employee's extension, they won't give it out. What right. they'll do is they'll tell you that that employee will have to give it to you, and that's to avoid um, that's to avoid giving information out that could be used by potential social engineers to do future attacks. Right. And I think you had some examples of stories where the receptionist doesn't give out anything really sensitive, but maybe they'll give a name of, you know. A title, a name, right, a, a, uh, a fax number. 
right. I mean, you know, it's just little stuff that mining. it's not in sen- yeah, it's not real sensitive, but it it's like the the first step in getting into the into the into the box <laughs> of where they have to get. Let's let's exactly. T- Let's switch now to um, The Art of Intrusion, which is your newer book, and that was great, too. And I, I wondered, I understand that you used real stories from, from other hackers, intruders, and deceivers. Uh, how did you do that? Did you go into websites and join some of these hacking websites? How did you do that? No, I actually uh, put, put the word out via, via uh, some hacking-related sites, via some you know, ex-hackers that I, I knew about. Um, I put it on my website that I was seeking out stories involving some of the most interesting hacks that were kind of unique and had an interesting spin to it. And the hardest part of this project was actually verifying that they were, that they indeed really happened and they were carried out in the same fashion. So doing the verification was extremely difficult. So we try to exercise, you know, due diligence to verify it. But in some cases, it ended up being a call, you know, uh, of whether I can believe what somebody was telling me. You know, because anybody could, you know, furnish, for example, screenshots or information, but then again, anybody could counterfeit those as well. Right. Uh, and I, I, it, was a fascinating, uh, it was a fascinating experience because I, I talked to people that, like, for example, this one uh, group of three guys that had reverse-engineered the software inside two brands of video poker machines in Vegas, and they found a flaw. And through this flaw that they were able to exploit, they actually built a device. And with this device, they could actually determine the next cards in play. Right, I remember reading that. Unbelievable. And these guys took Vegas for like over a million dollars, and the only reason they got caught is one of the guys, a young uh, Eastern European kid, was basically it was of the mindset that all the all the people that work in the casino are stupid and naive and so he wasn't careful. Right. So he'd go to the high rolling the high rollers video poker machine and he had would have one hand in his pocket in his jacket and he was winning a lot. Uh-huh. So when and then he won he, he he maxed out the machine so at that point the coins would drop. And that was very unusual to hear coins drop because of how the machines, you know, they use these uh, payout tickets. Right. So it brought attention. So that when they use the eye in the sky to say, hey, what's going on here? Right. And they see this guy, you know, doing something in his pocket and winning a lot of money. Well, what's the next thing that's going to happen is the casino security basically rushed this kid, found the device in his pocket. They basically confiscated all his money in the device and basically said, get out of town before sundown. Right. Right. <laughs> He's lucky that's all they did. Yeah, if you yeah. <laughs> lucky it's not like back in the 30s, huh? Yeah. <laughs> it would be somewhere in the desert. Right. We're speaking with Kevin Mitnick, who is a legendary former hacker. He is the author of The Art of Deception and The Art of Intrusion, and he's also now a professional security expert, and he's about to write his uh, new autobiography. And we're finding out right now we're talking about the art of intrusion, because I, I, I really loved your books. I thought they were really great. For someone who's not a techie, I could even understand what was going on most of the time. So I have to tell you, that that's important. Thank you. <laughs> So let's um, let's talk about um, how you show that many computer attacks can't be prevented just by securing the per- perimeter. Um, in fact, you talk about the disgruntled employee or a bitter former worker recently fired. Can you give us some examples of that? Yeah, think about it. Think about in your company, uh, especially in medium to large size businesses, if somebody is fired, they know a hell of a lot of information. Right. Uh, and a lot of companies today, even though even if they have policies against it, like sharing passwords, yeah, a lot of employees still share passwords to make it convenient to do their work because they trust each other. But when one, but when one of them gets fired, they don't change them. Right. And what happens is it creates an opportunity for a disgruntled employee to get back into the corporate network to possibly destroy information, which has happened. A lot. I mean, there's a lot of cases about this. You can go to cybercrime.gov, mm-hmm. and and I think you, you go down to the case section, and you'll see a lot of these cases. Uh, or they try to steal from the company. Right. 
And, and the insider threat is pretty substantial because the, the, the attacker, being the disgruntled employee, already knows where all the valuable assets are, mm-hmm. already knows how to operate the, their applications, already knows what people are, would have administrator privileges or, uh, or access rights to certain information because they work there. Right. So it really creates an, an opportunity. You know, Kevin, that, that actually happened to me. I had somebody who worked for me years ago, and they did a lot of work on my website, and um, I ended up having to get to fire them. They were doing drugs. And um, I just had this bad feeling, and I, I called up my my web uh, host, and I said, you know, you better change the passwords. I just have this bad feeling about the passwords. And I didn't have anything really sensitive, but it still was my website. And sure enough, the next morning, my my the pe- my people who run my uh, website said that there were um, attacks, which they never saw before. <laughs> so what probably happened, they said to me, was that this guy that worked for me probably put my passwords and stuff into... Um, some hacker website. And yeah, it's possible. It's yeah, great. but I, I, I was I just had this bad feeling and I immediately as soon as I fired him that very day, I changed all the passwords and what he had access to, which was the right thing to do. But I mean it was just like I had this gut feeling like this is someone that I had to fire, which I usually don't have to fire people, but it's still a good idea no matter what to change your passwords. Yeah, I was recently doing an interview at this one uh uh, media organization in New York, a uh, big, big company, and they brought me in to do this uh, interview. And, you know, I was like in the back office as I'm walking by, and I, I noticed on at least one desk it, it had the person's username and password written on a post-it note uh, stuck on the wall. Okay. <laughs> yes. Unbelievable. And I, 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 kinda, I, I kind of almost wanted to take a picture of it, but I didn't want to upset the, the, the media organization because I wanted them to invite me back. Right. So Did I, you tell them that? Example. Did you tell them, hey, you guys shouldn't be doing this? Yeah, I mentioned it yeah. to one of the producers. And basically the producer just shrugged it off. Oh, God. Like, like so what? Yeah, so stupid <laughs> and incredible. It's like when I was on, um, you know, I had that, that program that I did, Identity Theft, and there was a guy that I went to dinner with the night before who was part of this team for PBS, and he had this handheld uh, PDA and on it he told me he had his credit card number, his social security number and I said my god what are you doing what if that's lost, it wasn't encrypted and he just laughed it off I mean people are just oblivious even when you tell them so you know it's crazy yeah, but at the end of the day if somebody steals your credit card number I'm not talking about a full identity theft takeover right no but if they get your social if they get your social and they get everything else about you that's not good Right? No, but just your credit card number. No, that's no big deal. At the end of the deal. day, if you catch it on your statement, it's, yeah. it's no big deal. No, in fact, I, I, I tell everybody, use credit cards. They're safer than checks. They're safer than debit cards. They're safer than cash. Absolutely use credit cards. I card. agree. Yeah. I agree. But yeah. the whole problem with identity theft, in, in my opinion, is you could do very little to prevent it. The only thing you could really do right. is detect it and do damage control to, uh, as quickly as possible. Well, you know, with the security freezes now, they're at least for financial identity theft. But I remember when you interviewed me um, and we talked about identity theft, you told me that when you were running from the feds, you used the identities of children who had died. Correct. And you used their social security number. So, you know, I mean, all you need is the social, right? That's all you need, yeah, even the, today. Uh, even though... Uh, even though that's morally reprehensible because you're stealing essentially a dead person's identity. Right. It's, it's not nearly as serious of having somebody steal your identity right. and for financial purposes. And, or or even for crimes. Could, you know, I mean, I right. end up talking to people whose, whose identities were stolen for crimes, to commit crimes, to, to get health care, you know, things that can just, for the rest of your life, just ruin you you know if somebody has aids and they get health care in your name forget about it you know or if or you know i mean there's i've heard all these stories but let me let me ask you about this you talk about in your book how software manufacturers haven't made security a high priority and could you tell us about that because that seemed you know it's pretty frustrating it's kind of changed a little bit since uh, the book has been published is 
software manufacturers like you know the people that develop operating systems, Microsoft, Apple, uh, at the time of the writing of the book, they seem they appear to be more concerned about functionality and interoperability with their products and getting out to market before their competitors. Uh, and security was at a lower priority. But that dynamic seems to be changing because of market demand. For example, Windows Vista is now considered so secure, I'm not saying in my opinion, I'm just saying by certain members of the public, that it becomes difficult to use. And that's right, the, right. the trade-off. The more secure something is, the more difficult it is to use. So right. in, in, in Microsoft's and Apple's opinion, it was better at the time to have easier functionality and operability. They didn't want to flood their call centers uh, with technical support calls because people didn't, you know, couldn't get things working. So basically a lot of the security functions were turned off, and if you were smart enough to enable them, then you could run in a more security environment. Now, with, with Vista, it seems that Microsoft had turned a lot of these security options on by default, but now you see the jokes in television commercials where it says, allow or deny, allow or deny. Like everything you have a pop-up right. box, allow or deny. <laughs> right. But unfortunately, that's the necessary evil. If you want security, you're, you're going to have to live with that. So it's always this delicate balance and, and the trade-off of, uh, of what the risk is versus what the... Um, you know, but, what, but the benefit what functionality yeah. you want in in working with computers. Well, see, you're the you're so brilliant that I'm going to look to you as to develop this great, uh, you know, de- patents or whatever inventions to make it easy and secure. Okay, that's that's uh, that's your challenge. <laughs> yeah, I, bet, I bet you could do it. Security. Everyone <laughs> wants a transparent where you can't see it, you don't know about it, but you are secure. Yeah, that's what we want. That's it's not too much to ask, right? <laughs> Let no, me, I'll work on it tonight after the after the interview. Right. <laughs> Let me ask you something, Kevin. Everyone wants to back up their information um, in case that there's a crash or, or some problem. So what is the danger in backing up? Well, protecting the backups is the same as you would. If you have sensitive information on your computer, you also have to protect the backups. And in, in, in some companies I work for, when I was a fugitive, I worked for this law firm in Denver, one of the largest law firms. Of course, I wasn't using Kevin Mitnick. I was using the name Eric Weiss, who's you know, who's that's the real name of Harry Houdini. <laughs> I thought it was a. I thought I had a sense of humor, but I learned that the FBI did not. But anyway, um, I noticed that how they would, and this is like sensitive attorney-client privilege information, right? Uh-huh. What they would do is there's a company called Iron Mountain, and Iron Mountain actually uh, is an offsite backup. So what you do is you you store the actual physical backups with an uh, off-site company. Right. They would actually leave the tapes, uh, like, in a box next to the receptionist, and sometimes the receptionist wouldn't be there, or basically anybody can come in and grab that box of tapes, and the receptionist didn't ask anybody to sign for it. Okay. She just knew somebody was just going to pick up those tapes. So I was always, like, amazed by how easy that would have been just to not even have to break into that company's computer, but somebody could just steal the information because the tapes are right there. And they're not even encrypted, right? Nothing's nope. In- yeah. Not encrypted. And I didn't say anything at the time because I didn't want to... Yeah, you, know, you didn't want to bring I attention. I right? <laughs> running from the government <laughs> right. for hacking, and I figured maybe it wasn't a good idea to even mention I was aware of the stuff. Right. Lloyd is yeah. telling me that we only have two minutes left. Oh, we could talk forever, Kevin. You are so wonderful. Um, so why don't we do this? Why don't we have you just give us something like, what do you think is going to happen in the future? And um, what words of wisdom do you have? And give us your website. Sure. Well, I believe that uh, security will always become a cat and mouse game as companies are developing more, uh, more resilient products on the market to help protect you. There's the other, the other side is hackers are out there working to defeat it. So it's going to be a constant back and forth. There's not going to be any silver bullet. And the most important thing is to do is uh, run, a, run a firewall, make sure it's something resilient. Like I like Zone Labs, for example. Use anti, anti-spyware. I think there's a couple like Microsoft Defender, SpyBot, Search and Destroy. Back up your computer. Apply all the security patches automatically. Um, Keep your operating system up to date to the latest release of whatever, whatever whether it's Unix or whether you decide to uh, use Windows. Um, and try not to run uh, under administrator account. 
a lot of people in the Windows environment, you know, have full administrator rights. You should only use those rights when when it's absolutely necessary. And if you want to contact me, uh, I have a really cool business card that everybody – I get letters from all around the world every day. And what my business card is, it's actually a breakout lockpick set on a small business card. And if you go to my website, you can, you can take a look at it. There's even a video of somebody picking a lock with it. And you can actually send me the cost of it plus a self-addressed stamp envelope, and I'll be happy to send you one if you go to www.mitnick, M. I-T-N-I-C-K, security.com. That's www.mitnick, M-I-T-N-I-C-K, security, S-E-C-U-R-I-T-Y.com. And we'll just make sure that everybody gets a chance to read your books, The Art of Deception and The Art of Intrusion. And thank you so much, Kevin. We're going to have to have you back soon. Thank you for joining us. It's been a pleasure to be on your show. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.